Hey, I'm Mel. And I'm Andres, and you're listening to Mixtape, your favorite Afro-Latin podcast. What she said. Gózalo, que cuando goza mi negrita eso me hace feliz. Today's single title is inspired by the song Negrita, which translates to mean Dear Black Woman or Little Black Woman by La 33. You'll learn today why it is open to interpretation. No negrita no, no bailes más la conga sí. No negrita no. Today we're listening to the classic Cuban song Negro de Sociedad, performed in this 2019 version by Alexander Abreu, featuring Bobby Allende and La Conga de los Hoyos. Rumbabana has a very similar version from 2011. The song is really a dancer's delight. You should go grab the broom or something. You're gonna wanna dance this song. As for the story, Un Negro de Sociedad, or in other words, and in a rather classist way, a respectable black man, begs a black woman to stop dancing in the way she is because he probably can't resist it and people may start doubting of his social status. He says, Toda la argumentación de negro fino se me va a caer. If you are interested in knowing more about songs and artists, keep tuning for our Where You Listening series. Welcome to our third single. This is Mixtape. Before diving in, let's have a shared understanding about the state of knowledge around the word negrita. Literally, it might mean little black woman or black girl. In slang, it might mean darling, sweetheart, shorty, or shoddy. Contextually, in an article called Slippery Semantics, Race Talk and Everyday Uses of Racial Terminology in Puerto Rico, Isar Gadru says, it is a well-known fact among scholars of race relations in Latin America that racial terminology is highly situational and intimately linked to context of usage. Negro, for example, often carries a pejorative connotation because of its association with slave status. Yet, in certain interpersonal exchanges, such as the one described above, it can also be used to mark racial solidarity or sameness among those who openly identify themselves as black. Nonetheless, in other instances, the use of negro or its diminutive form negrito or negra, negrita, may communicate affection and intimacy regardless of the skin color of the person to which it refers, but not regardless of the relationship between the speakers. Which meaning is to be ascribed depends on who says it, how, and when. Culturally, in The Subtle Degradation of Black Women in Latin Music, Nicole Alvarez discusses how bachata, salsa, and merengue are all dominated by male musicians, and these male musicians have traditionally set the standard for how Black Latinas, Morenas, and Negras are portrayed through music. For instance, hypersexualization, attraction, lust, aggression. There are exceptions to this, like the recent episode of Were You Listening? Mi Negrita Me Espera. This song is about a man who wants to leave out of his own volition because he cares for his love interest and because he wants to be a good man. The man sees his negrita as someone he respects, his partner. He respects his negrita's womanhood because he sees his own blackness reflected in her. Alvarez goes on to discuss female icons in Latin music, such as Celia Cruz, who worked to reclaim what it means to be morena and negra, and highlights modern female artists. She identifies artists such as Princess Nokia and Nitty Scott, who also use their musical genres to show pride. One example is La Negra Tiene Tumbao, where Celia Cruz stresses the idea that the black woman is a leader, that people want to be like her, and that she should be confident in who she is. Alvarez makes another important note 
about Celia Cruz's music. She says, Celia Cruz uses the word negra instead of morena to describe the woman. Morena is not used once in the song La Negra Tiene Tumbao. More often than not, calling a woman morena is just a way of softening the fact that she is, in fact, a black Latina. Celia Cruz does not find the need to hide or soften the blackness of the woman she is singing about. Lastly, in a recent song by Jennifer Lopez, aka J-Lo, with Maluma, Jennifer Lopez refers to herself as Tu Negrita del Bronx, Little Black Girl from the Bronx. In fact, this song, named Lonely, was originally supposed to be titled Tu Negrita del Bronx. There have been mixed responses to this. J-Lo on Twitter stated that everyone knows she is a Puerto Rican from the Bronx and that she's never tried to hide that to try and get ahead. While some critics see this as cultural appropriation and a slap in the face to all black women, others claim negrita does not translate as a term associated with color, rather a simple term of endearment used by anyone. This is not the full scope of understanding of the use of the word negrita, but it's a good place to start for today's conversation. I'm Mel. And I'm Andres. And uh, we just want to welcome you to this single mixtape. And uh, we're really excited for this conversation that we will be having today. So um, as we all know, language is really important. And the words that we use communicate meaning. Um, they carry meaning. And that's why today we're focusing on the word negrita. Right. So, and as you probably know, uh, we've been working in this series called Where You Listening, in which we've been uh, translating and annotating songs that are in our mixtape playlist. And these are songs that talk either directly or indirectly about Black and being Black and Blackness in the Americas. Uh, so make sure you listen if, if you haven't. Uh, we have a pretty good selection there, almost 150 songs there already. Um, then as, as, as part of that series and with our work in that series, we've encountered several times the challenge of translating words like negro, negra, negrito, negrita, and variations of those words. Um, in that same context, so most of those songs uh, so far, with the exception of Raza, um, sort of were 60s and 80s songs, um, maybe early 90s. And we have, you know, change the meaning of how we use those words and, and the meaning that we communicate with those words over time. Uh, and not only over time, but also across locations. So we wanted to sort of take a deeper dive uh, into, the, into the meaning of this word, Negrita. So to do that, we have our important guests with us. We have Brianna and we have Andrea and we have William. Uh, so thank you for being here with us. Right, so uh, Brianna is a dear friend of mine, of course. She works in clinical research coordination in the University of Chicago. She lived both worlds. She uh, is a native of St. Louis, so she spent a whole lot of time there. But she also lived in Cali, Colombia um, for a year where she experienced the culture. So he, she had both experiences of the world, uh, both in the US, but also in, uh, in the Latin American country, in particular case of uh, Colombia. Andrea is also a dear friend of mine. We met when we were both in grad school and, and WashU St. Louis. Uh, shout out to WashU St. Louis. Um, she's now an assistant professor of women's and gender studies at the University of Michigan. Congratulations to you, Andrea. You're, you're a great researcher, so I'm very happy for you. And her research focuses on the intersection of transgender studies, Latinx studies, and feminist studies. William is a PhD candidate in the Department of American Studies at the University of Kansas. His research currently focus on, focuses on Black ethnics and the construction and social reproduction of Black American racial identity discourse in the public humanities. So we came across William's article titled, Who is the Negrito, Negrita, Negritex in Latino Rebels this past week as we were preparing for this episode and we reached out because we felt like he would be a great addition to this conversation. Okay, so before we get started with the conversation, we'd like to have you introduce yourself to the reader. So what do you do, which you know I already kind of primed you a little bit on, where you're from, how do you identify racially and why this is important for the conversation that we're having today. And finally, to make things a little bit lighter, what is something that you'd like your listeners to know about you that it's not out there obvious? 
So my name is Brianna. I am born and raised in St. Louis. Shout out to St. Louis. Um, and I identify as African-American. I am blackly black, um, even though I took the DNA test and turns out 63% is fine, it's cool. The other percent is European, but you know, great, great, great grandfather really ruined it, but it's fine. I'm going to specifically go for the black side. Um, so like Andres mentioned, I am a clinical research coordinator at the University of Chicago. Um, I specialize in prostate cancer, men get your prostate checked. Um, but now recently it's due to the COVID pandemic, I have also picked up COVID-19 studies. And so now it's about 50-50, I do prostate cancer research and I do um, COVID-19 research. Um, something many people don't know about is that um, the amount of different things I got to do in Cali, Colombia. Um, a fun fact is I actually never really traveled um, prior to maybe 24, 25 years old, which is crazy. Um, but after that, I had the opportunity to finally live my dream and go travel. So I finally went to South Korea. I have a twin sister who lives there and I got jealous. And so I actually ended up in Cali, Colombia where I had a lot of help from Andres to live there and live in Cali and um, train under CMR um, learning Salsa Caleña. So that's been always a dream of mine and it's been really fun. Siomar, just so that people, our listeners know, Siomar is uh, the 2017, I think, uh, yeah. cover it, uh, World Summit winner, um, yeah. I think. And uh, mm -hmm. the last question that, that we wanted from, uh, to hear from you, uh, Brie, is you identify yourself as Blackity Black African-American. Why do you think this is important for the conversation? Um, I think this is important because the way I identify is, has been the way I have been seen by other people specifically. Um, I'll get into this later on, but because I'm, I'm black and I look black, but I'm also very light skinned. So that has also been a lot of different types of conversation on how I am perceived. Um, but due to my experience as being black, especially growing up in mostly a suburban white area where we were one of the first African-American families to move there, um, we experienced a lot of different backlashes and we were viewed very differently from others. And so due to those experiences, it has helped me grow into the meaning of our conversation today. So I'm Andrea, um, I'm from Providence, Rhode Island and I would love to talk about Providence if we have time later. Um, as Andres said, I'm an, a professor in women and gender studies. I'm an anthropologist by training. So my PhD is in anthropology, but my work is at the intersection of transgender studies um, and Latinx studies. Oh, um, how do I identify? This is a complicated question for me. Um, so I'm just gonna dive into the meat of the conversation. Um, so my mom is Italian-American, AKA white. Um, she's super light-skinned. She has uh, blonde hair, green eyes. Um, people are always surprised when they see her and realize she's my mom. And I'm just like, do you not know it takes two people, you know, to procreate? Um, so my mom is white. My dad is from Colombia. Um, and in Colombia, he's regularly like read and referred to as Negro Moreno. Um, he's darker skinned, um, but he himself does not identify as black. Um, so for me, it's really important, like in general, to connect with my ancestors. Um, I, I really greatly value my Afro-Colombian heritage and my indigenous heritage. Um, and at the same time, I think it's really important for me to acknowledge that I, in the US, I'm not read as black, I don't think, um, and thus I'm not treated. Um, as Black, I don't have to deal with the structural um, and interpersonal anti-Black racism and violence constantly in my everyday life. Um, I think in Colombia, I've been called Morena. Um, I think mostly because I don't straighten my hair and there's a lot of pressure on women in Colombia to straighten their hair. Lots of people have straightened hair, it's like a thing. Um, but in the US, I, um, I think it's, you know, important to recognize that I have non-Black privilege. I've seen how the invisibilization and kind of harm that it has caused Black Latinxes in the U.S. when non-Black people identify as Latinx. Um, like there's the JLo example, which we'll probably talk about. There are a lot of examples in academia because academics are super weird. Um, so to answer how I identify, like I wish there was a word or like a category that was like, honor my Black and Indigenous heritage and also have non-Black privilege. Um, 
but there, you know, there isn't a word for that. Um, I'm, I don't identify as a white Latina. I'm not read as white. I'm not perceived as white. And I think um, white Latinxes need to identify as white. Um, so I guess if I were to pick one category, um, I just identify as, as Latina. Um, I think I said earlier that I'm the first of my family to graduate high school, um, which maybe isn't fun or interesting, but um, I have pride, in, you know, first gen pride. So I, I mean, that. I find that extremely interesting because <laughs> that, that makes you a lot, you know, you're, it's a lot of firsts that come after that then. Oh, yeah. First college, first PhD, first professor, it's a lot of firsts. Uh, pretty impressive. Yeah. Under that. My name is William Garcia Medina. I am uh, currently uh, a, a lecturer uh, uh, in, in the Department of, of Latino and Caribbean Studies at Rogers University in New, New Brunswick. I teach Caribbean history and Caribbean culture. I am also a doctoral candidate at the University of Kansas in the Department of American Studies with a focus on Black public humanities. Uh, I am also... <laughs> I am I'm currently a McDermott intern at the Dallas Museum of Art for the school and youth program. And um, I, I clearly identify as black. Um, I think that's important for this conversation because, um, you know, it's not until um, I'm 10 years old until I meet my cousin who is a black boy. It's the first time I see someone who's black speak Spanish. You know, prior to my, prior to moving to Puerto Rico when I was 10, um, you know, I was born there, but I, I, I moved on and off uh, when I uh, met my cousin, uh, Jonathan, who, who was, a, you know, well, very similar age. He was like nine or 10 years old as well. And I see my cousin who comes in to visit us. I had never seen a Black person speak Spanish other than, you know, I've never really seen that before in my life. So it was really interesting to kind of go back to Puerto Rico and see Black people talk Spanish. The moment when I started realizing a lot of my blackness is more when I moved back to Puerto Rico again when I was 20. Uh, when I started seeing, um, you know, like a lot of non-black people in television, there were, you know, there were no black people anywhere in media. Um, students would say a lot of race, uh, a lot of racist comments in classrooms. Uh, there were very, you know, you start seeing the socioeconomic reality of black people in Puerto Rico, and then that's when I started looking at my. I started looking at my my phenotype a lot differently, and so for me, yeah, identifying as black is very much part of the conversation, even though I'm what you would consider a mulatto in Puerto Rico, but still, um, definitely black. I, I'm thinking from what you described about your mixed ancestry is really one of the reasons that we decided to um, call mixtape what it is, um, because being um, Latino, Latina, Latinx, like the reality is we have mixed ancestry. Um, being African-American, the reality is there is mixed ancestry somewhere. Um, thank you, colonization. And so uh, mixtape seems, you know, really appropriate. So what you're bringing up is um, consistent with the, what we're doing here. Yeah, our, our first episode was pretty much having that discussion, Andrea, that you were having there trying to describe, okay, mm -hmm. so what it is that, uh, that we are, <laughs> we all are. Um, but yeah, let's let's jump in. Tell us about your understanding, either of you, of the word negrita. First, like being, I'm not Latina. Um, so when I first heard the word, I was actually in high school and my Spanish teacher was the one that initially told me like, oh, um, well, you would be called morena or you would be negrita. And so when I heard that, as a black person, I was like, is she, is, is that like the N-word? Is that what that is? Cause she just called me the N-word. Um, and it took, it took a while for me to understand what that meant. And so I thought it was, and when I first heard that word, I thought it was similar to the N-word, but just slightly less, like people said it, but it was okay. But then very much time people here think the N-word is just okay to say. So I didn't like it. Um, and then after a while, I got a little bit more explanation. Um, I knew Andres in St. Louis, and so he actually helped me understand it. And then when I went to Cali, which is predominantly um, Afro-Colombians, um, it was a complete game changer of what that word meant. Mm -hmm. um, so many people called me that. It was just common. 
Um, and I didn't take it no longer as like them call me the N word. It was literally like other like pe- other black people, other especially Afro Colombians, they they called themselves that. Like Sioma Rivas, she was always called like oh la negrita. Um, that was that was who she is. Like oh you're talking about la negrita, like que baila, like that that one. Like she was that person. Um, and then I was starting to be that that negrita person where I was like oh they never knew my name. That's how they called me. Um, so I started recognizing it as, okay, it is just, it is like, oh, the, the black girl, I was just known as that. And so it meant something like, okay, like we all say this, like, cause we are proud to be black. But then I started hearing white Colombians say it, but differently. Um, and sometimes the way that they would perceive it didn't seem the way that I perceived it. Um, sometimes it would be like, they would call each other that. And it was so strange to me when I would hear, and it was only around other white Colombians. I never heard them say it around other black Colombians, but they would call themselves like, oh yeah, Negrito. And I'd be like, I'm sorry, who are we talking to? This white boy over here? That's who we're calling Negrito? Okay. Um, And so it was actually pretty complex, but for the most part, I was so accustomed to it being this word of strength, but it got very, very tricky when it came to white Colombians using it. So it sounds like uh, for you, it, it began as, and when you got to Colombia, the form of the use of the word was some form of recognizing you descriptively. Yeah. Uh, you said they didn't know your name, but a descriptive way to identify you as a member of that community would be Negrita. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I should, I should ask uh, just for context, since I can offer slight uh, context of Colombian uh, habits uh, and honest Latin, uh, honestly Latin American habits uh, there's this notion of using description as opposed to names um, in Latin America for whatever reason I, can, I don't know it's historically why we do such a thing but the color of your hair the color of your skin how high you are how tall you are how fit or not fit you are whatever it is would be used as opposed to your name um, that is, you know, that is underlying this, but it's, there's also something to be said about the groups that we choose to, to use that uh, method of referring to someone with, right? So we, because using, using, using this description erases part of who you are and puts you in a broader category. So that's something that is, that we, we're not exempt from. I, 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 that's what I wanted to say. So when you, when we send among, among uh, ourselves, let's say. So I was I was Negro in the neighborhood. So if another black person calls me Negro, I'm like, short, um, like, you know, we're cool. But if somebody else calls you Negro, that has a slightly, somebody that doesn't belong to the culture calls you Negro, that has a slightly different meaning in the sense of what Brianna was saying. What you feel is that it's a, it's a little bit of an invisibilization. Um, Kind of now you're you're the exactly the the the, the thing that you said you're the negra la negra el negra no longer Brianna uh, the person who does clinical research who dances who no now you're la negra and that's that's it right? that summarizes your meaning so that that's also is that tension between yes it's descriptive and and we're getting to the endearing but also it has that invisibilization that Andrea was talking a little bit about earlier. That reminds me of, um, I, in preparation for this episode, I was talking to my best friend and her mom, and uh, we, were, we were talking about the use of the word negro, negra, negrita, and um, my, my best friend's mom mentioned that she had an uncle in her family who was very dark, but everyone called him blanco. And so we, we talked about, she said she was so confused growing up that as to why his name was Blanco and, and started to believe that the word Blanco actually meant black because of the way black and Blanco starts. Um, and then realizing that that's not the case. And she was like, why do we call him Blanco? And I was like, you know, how curious that is because it, it could have been a, a way of um, kind of making fun of his skin color by saying the complete opposite. I would um, not be surprised if that was the case. Yes, yeah, that, that was my assumption of that. So yes, recognizing you descriptively, uh, but also um, make, attaching some meaning to the word, whether it's consistent with 
the way you look or completely inconsistent with the way that you look. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Andrea? Yeah. Um, so my family, my Colombian family, members of various uh, shades and races, they use the word negrita um, as an endearing term. So that is kind of how I um, first encountered it and what I think of. Um, I think about the word and what it means to me. So for example, I have a cousin um, who's super sweet and they're always like, oh yeah, Beto is un negro, is un negrito to kind of like highlight how kind he is. Um, and my dad also calls me negrita in like a very loving way. Um, in addition to like all my other nicknames. So like, he'll call me like mi niña, mi princesa, Andreita, Andreina, mi negrita. Like it's one of many um, uh, nicknames that express love and care. Um, and I think when my dad calls me it, it's like pretty complicated because like my dad's using it. He's viewed as black, doesn't identify as black. He's using it to talk about a significantly lighter skinned daughter. So like that's pretty complicated. Um, but I think in general, it always made me uncomfortable. <laughs> um, even as a child, I think, I think I could kind of see very clearly that there, in my opinion, there's a connection between negrita um, as a term of endearment and like the mammy figure, right? So like this figure of like the fat black woman who's expected to take care of everybody and everyone else's kids, but like maybe not herself and her own kids. Um, and of course, you know, this figure um, originates from, from slavery, right? Um, so I think, I think, you know, for me um, and how I've seen it used in my family and used for me that it makes me um, uncomfortable. It's interesting thinking about the way family members use it. Um, I have um, a, a cousin who is a bit darker than me, and I have a, I guess, cousin-in-law who's um, very light-skinned. And, and when they talk to each other, the light-skinned um, cousin-in-law, she'll refer to her as black girl. So she's like, hey, black girl. And she's like, hey, girl. But it's like, I love you, black girl. Like, I'm recognizing you, black girl. Mm -hmm. um, the way we use it in our family context can be interesting. Yeah, so um, what I was going to add, two things there. I, I, I was remembering, remembering uh, as, as Andrea was saying, all the nicknames. Um, my mom is, so my dad is the one that it's uh, on my side, the one that would be um, thought of as Negro in Colombia. Um, my mom is, is uh, I would think, I would call her white Latina, but she probably has a mix of native, uh, native and, and white and Spanish. Um, she has, I don't even know how many nicknames for me, as, as Andrea was described, Negrito, Mi Negrito El Baite, Mi Negro Bello, you know, a hundred million different versions of that, but she been, she been uh, sort of light skin or either white uh, Latina. It's, if you think about it, uh, it can be problematic. So it has a, it has a very complex uh, structure to it. The other thing I was gonna say is uh, something Brianna mentioned at the beginning about uh, understanding Negrita from the perspective of somebody that first hears this word in the US and thinking, oh my God, is this person calling me the N word? <laughs> uh, and I can totally see it. I had the exact opposite of that, right? So gr growing up, being you know, my nickname again until I left the country was Negro. And my friends called me Negrito, my mom called me Negrita. One of my friends, and I, I think I said this in the first episode, one of my friends, uh, American-born friend um, from Colombian parents who was living in the same neighborhood, he would use the N-word to refer to me in Colombia. But I didn't know anything so like, it didn't speak any English so for me that was another version of saying Negrito right so the, the complete opposite of your experience in which I'm like okay this is just another way so it's probably fine and then discovering the meaning when I came to the U.S. Uh, was you know completely shocking for you it was like oh this word actually means also endearing yes it can be conflicting but it can also mean endearing for me it was like oh wait a minute that's not what that word means um so it's very interesting to see, you know, how the meaning uh, switches. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, you know, uh, like like most people, I, I I grew up hearing that word a lot, and and uh, you know, especially uh, a lot of people in salsa. You know, I think salsa music was the first time I really, you know, started hearing that word a lot. You know, uh, uh, and I. I you know, people like Carlos Tremera, like a super pale white Puerto Rican, um, 
Mel Singer would say the word negrito all the time. And, you know, just, so salsa music is definitely the one that I, it's the genre of music that really introduced me that term um, negrito and, and negro. Um, and uh, yeah, like, like, you know, when I live in Puerto Rico, most people just call each other, you know, people, uh, it's usually a, a lot, this is kind of weird, a lot of like um, negro, um, yeah, definitely the older generation would call each other negro and negra a lot more often. Um, you know, um, people of, of, of older generations would call, refer, refer, reference themselves as negro and negra as, as endearment. You know, it's like, ah, you over there or negro, come here. And so, you know, when I was younger, I just thought that was just, um, and obviously reggaeton was uh, the second kind of introduction to the word negro, uh, but, um, you know, very similar to salsa music where they were just kind of using that word around, um, but not as much as salsa. Salsa was definitely the one where a lot of people were using that word around. Um, and it was really interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, that's where I got introduced to that term. And uh, it's not so I get, you know, I like I, like I wrote in my article where, <laughs> I was in the classroom with my good friend colleague, and uh, he's using the word negrito. And the professor uh, says, uh, "Was he, you know, he stretches out his hand to his side, and you know, as, as if he was measuring a child, and asks, was he this, was he, was he this high?' When he says, and he, and he, he's, you know, he says, "No, no, no, I meant negro." And um, and like I said in the article at that time, you know, there was. Uh, Theo Calderon was kind of using that black affirmation. He was using a lot of, you know, a lot of black pride within his Puerto Ricanness, and um, you know, and and so that kind of got me thinking into like how blackness is used as an extension of something, you know. <laughs> so blackness is always kind of used as an extension of some kind of ideological system. When I learned that black uh, that blackface was used in Cuba in order to represent Cubanness, especially after eight years wars happening in Spain, when I found out that blackface is being used as a way to like manifest Cubanness, that for me was impactful because I was like, wow, blackface is being used in order to, uh, in order to highlight uh, national identity, uh, which is kind of, kind of heinous, right? I mean, it's kind of hard to think about for me. Uh, and so, then I started thinking about all the time, you know, how blackness uh, has been an extension of either some kind of national identity or some kind of ideological system. And so, uh, obviously, and I'm always thinking about what, 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 well, what happens to black people? Then what, what is the worth of black people if, if blackness is always used as national identity or as a form of language that that is for everyone, you know? because it represents something supposedly in our blood. Even though we know race is not biologically real, um, you know, we use biological metaphors to refer to African blood, which is like, no microbiologist is gonna affirm that, which is impossible. But it's, I mean, it's physical if it's so, based on social relations, right? I mean, race can be real if it's based on what humans do to each other. But so, when, you know, we, we've kind of created a really interesting myth around uh, African and indigeneity and all these other belief systems that affects black and indigenous people. And so we have to, I'm really happy to see this generation kind of step, stepping up and saying, you know, um, we're kind of tired of this. Um, you know, I, I mean, I also had another, you know, moments where I used to, I went to New York and I saw like non-black Puerto Ricans do spoken word and used the word negro and mi pelo is kinky and my hair is kinky and this, and, I, and I'm looking at this, person I'm like no it's not I don't know what you're talking about no it's not like I don't know what you're saying and so it becomes uh, you know I, I think this generation is a little tired of of blackness always being an extension for anything and everything else except for black people so we're trying to make sure that blackness can be an extension for black people first before it's an extension for anything else William touched on something that's very important I think um because it's something that we've been using in the podcast with the where you're listening series precisely is the the fact that salsa music, in general, Latin American music, uh, Afro-Latin American music, I would say, use this language of, uh, especially the, the um, Afro-Latino artists use this language um, to a lot of, for a lot of meanings, sometimes to make fun of themselves, sometimes to 
be proud of themselves, sometimes just to describe life as a black person in Latin America or in the US. So that's something that we've been like all of that normalcy that 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 here mixtape we say it's not only a right of the white race, it should normalcy, which should also be a, a right of the of any other race, in particular uh, black people. Like you should be able to be, yes, a superstar and you should be able to be an awful person and you should be able to be an average person because guess what? We're just humans and there's some biological differences. So you you're gonna find persons all over the distribution and that doesn't represent the whole race for one single individual. So that's one thing. And the other thing is this idea of how negritude or blackness was used as a political agenda, which he was, uh, William was mentioning how it was done in Cuba, uh, which as you know, was one of the main ports uh, through which slavery was happening or the Atlantic slavery, but also it happened in a um, very similar way in Brazil. Right, so the, the identity of Brazil was constructed by the government around blackness as well. So the, the, the embracement of Samba and African uh, and Afro-Brazilian culture was thought of. It was a plan, the political plan to build the national identity that William is mentioning as well in Cuba to unite Brazilians around the flag, not for the, not for the benefit of black people in Brazil, but for the benefit of the ruling classes of Brazil and unite that and unite the country politically. So it's precisely, it's been done in several countries uh, as well. I wanna take us back to um, this J-Lo situation. I saw a post about this. Um, I, I had not heard the song before seeing the post. So was I biased by the post? I'm not sure, um, but uh, as you all know, there's a the song called Lonely by uh, Jennifer Lopez and Maluma, which was intended to be called Tu Negrita del Bronx. Um, someone advised them to change the title, which uh, we're all happy that they, they did so. Um, but, you know, now there's been conversation about um, who gets to use this word, who gets to describe themselves this way, um, as you mentioned, William does a great job of digging into this in his um, his opinion piece. Um, I'm curious as to how Brianna and Andrea are um, taking in this information and making sense of who gets to use this, who doesn't get to use this, who gets to describe themselves. So JLo, I've always already had a little bit of a mm, about um, simply because <laughs> Um, a lot of her past to just the way, and, and I and I completely as she's from New York, she's from the Bronx, and so the way that she represents that style, obviously, that's her experiences, the way that she grew up. But this isn't the first time that I have heard her use the term calling herself Negrita, and so I think this is just the first time she put it in a song where other people could hear it. Because if you look back, I used to be like as embarrassing as it sounds when you're in high school and you have to choose a Latin artist and do a conversation about them and blah, 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 mine was JLo. And I used to have to look up her old interviews and stuff like that. And she called herself Negrita a lot. And she recognized herself a lot as she would talk about like being with black people and seeing herself as Negrita and this. And I remember at that time I was like, girl, no, you're not, <laughs> like, you're not. And then also to the reference, it's, it's tricky too, because that is what people view as Latina anyway, it's JLo. I didn't know as horrible as it sounds, I did not know there were black Latinos until maybe I was 20 or 21. Like that was my very first time knowing that there were black Latinos. Cause I never saw them on TV. It was when the wonderful Viva when like Andres and I would go there and there was like these black people uh, speaking Spanish. And I was like, oh shoot, like there's black people that know Spanish. And then Andres looked at me like, they're Latino, Brianna, like of course. And, and that's sad, but back to the JLo situation, it's just, I think that she has already viewed herself as more morena and more negrita than I think that she actually is. And she has a lot of privilege from being a lighter skinned Latina. And so I have never truly listened to a lot of her songs too, too much. I recognize her as a performer, but it just already made me feel awkward seeing her publicize the way that she is, but also making money off of, sometimes what I see is more of 
black money <laughs> um if that almost made if that makes sense um it just made me feel very uncomfortable I just started as I got older starting to support people who I felt like were deserved to be supported wholeheartedly and not with just weren't making money like an Iggy Azalea not saying she's an Iggy Azalea of, of music but there's just certain points where I just think that she makes money off of certain black aspects when she's not black yeah I mean I, I'm not from the Bronx I'm from Brooklyn but I lived in the Bronx um for long enough in Castle Hill where where um JLo is, is from and when you're living in Brooklyn or the Bronx you know there the way that the neighborhood structure is set up it, it's such a mix of culture and so I think in some ways it could be uh easy to think that she's of the culture because of the environment um and but what's what's interesting about Jennifer Lopez to me is that um, there, there are some people who cannot turn black on and off, right? And she's perfectly capable of turning black off or negrita off, right? When she's playing a role in a movie and she plays the Italian or she's in a role in a movie and she plays the white girl, right? Um, and so my sister and I have this discussion all the time. What is is she of the culture? Is she is of the culture? Is she, what is she allowed to say? What is she not allowed to say? But the fact that she could turn this aspect of herself, how she identifies off and on is a clear indication of the way that you can use this kind of descriptive language in ways that benefit you and then turn it off when it doesn't benefit you. Yeah, I totally agree with uh, so many of the points that both you and Brianna made. Um, and first of all, let me say that I had not seen the video yet. So right before we all met, I was like, I guess I have to watch this video and saw that it was nine minutes. And I was like, really, I have to waste nine minutes of my life on this. <laughs> I watched the video. I just looked at the clip. <laughs> it's nine minutes long. Um, so I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about um, the video, but I, I want to kind of emphasize something that Brianna said, which is that not only has she used this word before to describe herself, but um, in addition to that, she's saying out loud what so many other folks are already like embodying and doing. Um, so I'm thinking about um, so many artists, uh, white Latinxes, even white non-Latinxes who visually appropriate like black aesthetics and style. Uh, so, you know, like getting super tan, wearing braids, hoops, head wraps, she was wearing a head wrap. Um, and, you know, also just thinking about appropriating music, you know, black um, Afro-descendant music more broadly. Um, so just want to say like, she said it out loud, but you know, there are so many people who are, who are guilty of this. Um, as far as the video goes, oh my gosh, there's just so many scenes that are just so incredibly um, hypocritical that we could analyze. So it starts off where she's like sitting in the castle slash plantation um, while she's unwilling to recognize that her ancestors probably benefited from, you know, labor that happened on plantation um, stolen from enslaved people. The fact that she makes herself a victim of police brutality is just so upsetting and enraging. And there's even scenes of her, when she says the phrase, she's, she says it from behind bars. Um, is incredibly, I think, um, insensitive and, you know, arguably an act of violence against folks who have been subject um, to the prison industrial complex and um, police police violence. Um, so those are some thoughts about JLo in general. I mean, something else that's interesting to me about JLo because I'm interested in um, how um, certain folks, races and genders are hypersexualized. Um, as you know, we think about JLo, we think about like her booty or butt. Um, and how for her, you know, it's, it's racialized in some ways and it's racialized as attractive um, because, you know, it hints to dark, darker ways of being. Um, but, you know, if she were black and had a big butt, then it would very quickly kind of tip over into grotesque. And there's very much a relationship between like what is grotesque and what is attractive. Um, but, you know, I think it's interesting to think about where she, she falls on that because of her whiteness. Um, and then lastly, I think when we think about um, rules about like, you know, who can use this word, you know, now we're having this conversation because of this music video. Um, I think it's, you know, it's important to think really critically about who's saying it um, and who they're talking about, like, you know, as we've already talked about. Um, and I do think it's true that, you know, as we've also talked about that the race of the, the who is not always clear cut, um, especially in Latin American context. 
and you know this is something that's regularly acknowledged like in discussions about race in Latin America there's this kind of discourse that like oh you know race is more fluid and contextual in Latin America than it is in the U.S. because of the one drop rule here um and while yes like that's I think that's totally true I also think that there's a lot of unexamined, as Mel was pointing out a second ago, there's a lot of unexamined um, colorism and anti-blackness in that narrative. Um, because when we're saying like, oh yeah, race is really contextual, you know, it can change, it depends on X, Y, and Z, it, it totally um, fails to acknowledge and erase uh, those of us, those folks, excuse me, not us, um, so I don't recognize my white skin privilege here, um, those folks who are unambiguously like always black, right, as Mel's saying, cannot um, switch it off. Um, so kind of, I think that narrative undermines existence and the relentlessness of uh, anti-black racism in Latin America. I think much like, as William was saying, um, the myth of the kind of tri-racial mestiza democracy um, why it's so dangerous. I mean, there are a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is that it allows people to say, oh, well, you know, I'm, we're all black and we're all indigenous so that they don't have to confront their, um, the ways in which they engage in and perpetuate um, anti-black violence. Yeah, I, I think when I think about, um, before we started our episodes, one of the things that I, I felt that, um, and Andres, you can tell me if you remember me saying that, uh, I, I felt like we really need to challenge what does it mean? Uh, what does our proximity to blackness mean to us, right? What, is that, what does that mean for who we are or how we thought ourselves to be? Um, what does that mean for now the way people see us if we recognize our proximity to, to blackness specifically for those um, Latin Americans or, or, or Latinx folks who uh, present as black and have been told they're in entire life, you're not black, you're Puerto Rican, or you're not black, you're Cuban, you're not black, you're Colombian. Um, what does it mean for us now to really lean into that? Um, and it's hard. In my family, we didn't use the word negrita, as I, as I just mentioned. We use the word negro a lot. Um, my uncles are very dark, and we use it as a, an endearing way. And so everybody was comfortable saying negro, but for the women, who were not quite as, as dark as my uncles, but black, uh, the women in my family were not called Negrita. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if you all are familiar, but there was a series called Celia that was on a couple years ago. <laughs> and um, my family and I, we watched it together and Pedro Knight called Celia Negrita, mi Negrita, and my dad fell in love with calling my mom Negrita. So he's now in, my parents are the most like adorable couple ever. They post on Facebook all the time with their couple pictures. And my dad is constantly like, this is my negrita. I love you, my negrita. And now they're using it in a way that's more endearing. But in when I think back, that I don't think that was the case for my family before it was presented in a way that it could be endearing when you're calling someone who is neg negra, negrita. Rather, it was avoided because... Um, they didn't want it to be offensive. As we moved into, into discussing, okay, what we can do to question or, or, or better our understanding when to use this word, I would want us to think a little bit about or, or say our impressions about where this endearing use of the word came from. Because it, it I mean, 150 years ago, it's not like calling you Negrito was endearing. So how is it that now we we arrive into this into and this probably has to do with with what William mentioned before about the usage of blackness as a political tool to build identity, but when was it that we that we I mean we sh we uh, we probably should at all times use the word in an endearing way if not just descriptive, but that was not the case of course in the U.S. at all. And it was also not the case in, I'm pretty sure, any Latin American country that we use the word as a, as a, as a positive way uh, of describing or, or a way of showing uh, love. How was it that that would transform into an endearing term? And, and that, how does that illuminate the ways in which we are allowed to use that word and who gets to, to use that word? Because sometimes I feel like a little bit of the discussion is, well, you know, we're all Colombian, we're all Puerto Rican, we're all Cuban, so we can use it. Well, you're forgetting where that, where, you know, where that word came from and who were the ones 
the human beings that were actually the embodiment of that war and what they were exposed to. I kind of wonder, once again, speaking as the non-Latina in this group, um, if it comes from like possibly um, similar to like with Black African-Americans, the way that many Black people and, you know, it still goes back and forth on the argument on Black people using the N-word. Um, but the argument is the reason that Black people use it is as a form of endearment to take back the power from the people that originally gave us the name N-word. So then by us using it, we're taking back the power. Now, everybody has their own different personal um, opinions behind that and whether or not they are okay with that or not. Um, and But in this case, I kind of wonder if that started to happen as well too, um, in which many Afro-Latinos possibly started to use the word like, okay, they use that to as a derogatory name, but now we're gonna say we are proud to be black. And so we are going to call ourselves negritas, negritos as a term of like, we are proud of it and as a term of endearment. I'm not completely sure, but it's, it's so- I mean, I, 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 think, I think it has, I has uh, truth to it because uh, as I was saying in my neighborhood, for instance, uh, until a while, maybe I was 12 or no, not 12, probably 15 or something. I was the, the El Negro, no, the only uh, Afro-Latino. Then at some point, another Afro-Latino moved into the neighborhood. His, he never got a nickname, so he was David. Uh, whom I, I shouted out in one of our Where You Listen episodes, but his name for me was Negro. So that was, and it, and it felt fine. It was, I mean, I think that was when it felt the best is when he was calling it that way. But it's even even among ourselves, um, I think that's that's what, I, what you're saying. So we're claiming back and I'm not even sure if we're necessarily consciously claiming it. It's just that we started using it and maybe that's what you mean. We started using it in that other sense of the word. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's so important to recognize how people reclaim um, words that were previously derogatory to make them empowering. Um, so I don't know the history, but um, I think in my first or second answer, I talked about the mammy figure and how, for me, I see a connection between the mammy figure and the way in which, especially women, are called negrita um, as a term of endearment because of gen that like black black women should be caring and take care of everybody. Um, so for me, whenever someone is called Negrita to highlight how like caring and like loving they are, I always think of, of the mammy figure. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's such an interesting question, Andres, because I, I wanna like challenge you a little bit um, in something you were saying, you are saying like, you know, clearly back, you know, when there was slavery, it, it couldn't have been an endearing term because Black folks were so dehumanized um, and viewed so negatively, but I think that there are just so many contradictions around <laughs> around racism and anti-blackness um, and enslavement that I think it's very possible that while um, people thought while, while white people thought black people were disgusting, they were also still associating them with care um, and still using negro negrita as a, a term of endearment. And I was thinking about. Um, I was thinking about the contradictions um, when I was, when William was talking about his incredible piece and the example that he starts the piece off with um, and thinking about um, negrito, like the, the diminutive, I don't know how to pronounce that. <laughs> the, you know, the ito that we add to the end of words. And I know that like, you know, it's, it's a very like Latin American, like Latinx cultural thing to like make things end in little and then it's like cute and caring. Um, but I was thinking about how we use negrito, negrita um, as a way to be infantilizing, right? And it, when we think about men, it's a way to be, you know, emasculating in particular and how we infantilize black people. But then I was thinking how while we infantilize black people, we also don't let black children be children. <laughs> and we force black children to grow up more quickly. Like that's a contradiction that is real. So I think that maybe um, even while, while people openly detested black folks, they still um, use the term in an endearing way, just like we see in popular culture. While we openly detest black folks, we still appropriate all of their culture and love it. So I just wanted to, to add that. Yeah, I, th I agree completely. There's a huge contradiction there where we use it uh, back then and they were using you know, black women as the caring figure for their children. 
obviously mm -hmm. that is that there's a connection there between caring and being blank. So I, I completely agree with the, what you said. Yeah. Well, my comment is going to be based on what Melissa said is that we need to revisit reinterpret the history of the Americas through a black lens. And because it, it is so important because what that does is it allows us um, to reinterpret how we think we understand things of the past and and kind of create, you know, educational tools and conversations around that to change it. Because, you know, for I think Juan Flores, may he rest in peace, a great scholar wrote about that uh, you know, the United States is always dichotomized with the Caribbean, Central and South America. And he sought to change that because he's, he, he found a lot of similarities between, uh, you know, North, you know, be between the in the hemisphere. And I agree with that because, you know, uh, I, you know, we, we tend to think of, and I mean, I think what, I mean, at least in the Puerto Rico case of, of 1898, uh, going back to what I wrote is I believe that. I, I do firmly believe that, um, you know, that after the US invades or when, um, you know, many countries in Latin America are, get, are, are gaining their independence from Spain and dealing with the you know, United States and their informal means of empire, uh, especially with their manifest destiny. And I think that we start creating uh, start to try to understand ourselves, right? Going back to like, um, you know, going back to, you know, La Raza Cosmica or, or trying to really, under, what, what does it mean to be us? You know, like, what does it mean to create literature that's not from Europe or the United States? What does it mean to be us? And I think that's something that, that many elites have been kind of in the forefront of creating that us, who, who are we? In, in the middle of like being in the middle of colonialism and creating our own coloniality, our own issues. Uh, you know, and so we've created a narrative that, you know, going back to what we've said a couple of times already is like, it, there is a political, you know, I, you know, in, in the comments in Facebook, a lot of people, their comments is like, oh, you no, know, this can't be true because we have, we have African blood, you know, grown people, you know, people with PhD, I, I, I mean, we had people with PhD say those things, you know, we have African blood, you know, we, we just have so many myths that we just ha have to really work hard to demystify we uh, re-examine how we think we we understand things from a Black-centered experience, you know? And I think that's what Melissa has been emphasizing. I definitely agree with her. Like, how does this look like from a Black perspective? And that's really hard for people to do because they still believe in the mestizaje myth, you know? Like, because the, the difference between us using negro, negrito, and how we use, is that for us, it's a little more, I would say it's a little, it, it's it's very, difficult because we use, we still believe that we are racially mixed and we still think that race is not a biological metaphor. We still think that race is actually real, that we, that it has to do with blood and, and we, we still associate race with biological determinism. We still do. I mean, I, I get that comment all the time. And that's why when I teach at Rutgers, I, I make sure to teach what is race, <laughs> what is not. And uh, I always, I spent two weeks, you know, talking about race and defining race before we even get into blackness, because they still think that race has to do with blood and DNA and that has to do with the Spanish who used uh, pureza de sangre, you know, the, the purifying of the blood against, uh, against the more, um, against the Moors and, and, the, and the converto and, the, you know, the Jewish convertos in Spain. So they've been using that kind of biological metaphor for a long time and definitely got solidified after eugenics and, and pseudo history around, around race. But we still believe in those things and we use that as a way to kind of consolidate our identity, like you said, uh, you know, around, you know, creating a political movement that says, oh, we're, we're, we're not white, we're not white or black, because that would mean that we are the United States. We have to be black, white, indigenous, we have to be a mix. And so I think, I think a lot of people, I think that something happened in society in the Americas where different people did get together and reproduce and do things, but we're using a really white supremacist framework to understand it. Like I was explaining to someone that mestizo is not the same thing as mestizo. <laughs> Mestizo is the group of, who's racialized in that way. And Mestizaje is the white supremacist, Vasconcelos, you know, cosmic race understanding of how you interpret your Mestizo identity. And so they're not the same thing. And same thing is here. Like, we, things happen in the Americas, sure. 
but we just need to stop using a white supremacist framework to understand who we are and using pseudoscience like it's in the spirit it's in my you know I'm, I'm black in the inside and we need to like educate people and explain what is race race is a you know it's based on social relations it's based on politics it's based on the economy it's based on power relations it's not based on biology you know if you want to talk you know ancestry and culture though you know ethnicity we can have that conversation and i think we can use that in a K to 12, we need to use that in, 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 in public uh, humanity spaces like libraries, museums, and bodegas. We need to have that conversation with everyone. And I know it's difficult, but at least those of us who are in positions where decisions are being made, we need to emphasize that, you know, that uh, that mestizaje myth needs to go. It just needs to be eradicated. You know, we need to, and then once we do that, we need to send, we, we need to see things from a black perspective and many perspectives, but for me, that's the biggest issue that we have because if you look like, if you're like a, a white Puerto Rican and you look like uh, Ricky Martin in the 1930s, your experience is not gonna be like Juan Hernandez who was a black Puerto Rican actor who was a pioneer of the African-American film industry. So your experience is not gonna be like, you know, you know, uh, you know that's not gonna, every, every Puerto Rican is not having the same experience in the United States. Every Cuban is not having the same experience in Cuba. Every Puerto Rican is not having the same experience in Puerto Rico. Right, we need to just kind of re-examine everything. I think my only opinion on this would be like, it kind of like his his conversation. It kind of reminded me of like, okay, like, like how do we get this to settle over? And when I think back, when I was in when I was in Cali, the way I got to live there was um, I was a teacher, and so I taught English and I taught biology at a colegio, um, and it was a very it was a private school, um, very bougie, very expensive for Colombian standards and extremely white. Um, and I was one of the only two black teachers there. And, and I was the American one teaching English and the other one, um, she taught history, but she was Colombian and she taught of course in Spanish. Um, and I remember too, like when I started working at that school, there were only two black people um, in my classes. And I had a class of 180 students and they would call him Negro, Negrito. And I remember having a conversation in class because they knew in my classroom, I felt uncomfortable the way that the kids were using it towards him um, because I felt like he was viewed as, he was obviously viewed as different because, and I could tell by the way that he was being treated. So I told them like in my classroom, they're not allowed to use it. And there was just whole big thing and their kids, but like, you know, middle school kids um, had this whole argument on why they could use it because it was different in the states they would they would use then sometimes they would call him the n-word because they were in english class so they were trying to call him that and it was just this complicated thing and i remember trying to have a conversation with them about it and during um black history month in february i made them celebrate it and it's crazy too because like there's black history month in colombia as well um but it wasn't very well celebrated um in the school, at least, at least in my school, um, I worked at another, I volunteered at another black school there as well. There it was celebrated, but my school, not very much. Um, and I remember having a conversation about this, about black race and things such as that. And this kid came up to me, I remember after class, the, the only black kid that I had. Um, and he was just like, I never knew about this. <laughs> Um, and it shocked me to think, I'm like, what are you learning in history? <laughs> um, but similar to like in which like the way that we grew up too, um, like it's sad that, that he had to learn about slavery from the American teacher, but slavery in Colombia and slavery in Latin America. Um, I just think that starting from a younger age, I feel like is when kids kind of have to start getting a better understanding of this because the way that I feel like many kids learn the word like negrito, negrita, initially it's from of course family members and songs similar to like the way I learned like the end where it's still very different obviously but like I learned it from songs and I didn't get a better understanding into it and to it until I was older. I would add that white Latinxes need to recognize that they're white <laughs> and non-black and non-indigenous Latinxes need to recognize that um, they have that privilege those privileges. Um, I'm a professor um, and so many times someone would tell me like, oh, there's this like other Latinx professor, you should meet them. And I'm like, oh, yay. And then I meet them and then they're like super white, um, right? Um, so 
you know, and then they, like, those people are, like, touted as, like, oh, like, we're so diverse. I'm, like, is it really diverse if you're, like, a very white, you know, Latinx person? Um, so recognizing all of that, and, of course, just emphasizing what William has said, centering um, Black, Latinx, Black, Latin American um, experiences and knowledges was of the most important uh, importance. And then I think maybe the last thing I would add is that I really appreciated how Mel um, got us to think about gender and how the term is gendered in different ways. And I think, you know, as we think about um, structures of racism, you know, we should take an intersectional approach, um, which means always thinking about structures of racism in, um, in, in connection to structures of sexism. Um, and then even to take that a little bit further. So not only, you know, thinking about, um, sexism against women, but also thinking about how structures of racism work together with systemic transphobia. So also, you know, as we think outside of the racial binary, I also want to make sure that we think um, or think critically about a racial binary. We also think critically about kind of gender, gender binaries and other um, systems of oppression that intersect um, with racism. Well, thank you all for your time. You're all brilliant. Um, I mean, this conversation has been so rich and um, I'm sure it will continue through posts and uh, op-eds and all the other ways that we can continue to educate each other and educate the people we love and the people that don't love us so much about uh, the use of language um, in uh, our everyday lives. So again, thank you for joining us. Andres, any last words? For yes, uh, of course, if, if uh, not only for, for our guests, but also for our listeners, uh, We've had already a couple of episodes addressing different things. We started um, we're, we started from the perspective of dancing, but of course we were not naive. We're, we both have studied this in different ways and experienced it in different ways. So we're not naive and thinking that this is something that only happens in dancing. Um, but it was the platform through which we wanted to express this. So we have some material there as well that uh, the listeners uh, should definitely explore. Um, as well as our new series that uh, where you're listening, where we're actually trying to explore the usage of these terms and, and the perception of blackness uh, in the Americas through the music that uses this language and, and in, in very sometimes great ways, but sometimes in very conflictive ways. So I invite you all to, to listen to those episodes as well and to keep uh, on the loop for the new singles and new topics that we're gonna be bringing into the future. And yeah, thank you very much for, for joining us. I think you, you guys gave us uh, great insights. Mira que soy de sociedad. Si me... Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for more Were You Listening tracks in the weeks to come. This is Mixtape. Mm-hmm.